Hello and welcome to episode number six of The War Pod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines, rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank based here in London in the UK. My name is Liam Walpole, I'm the Senior Policy Officer for the Remote Warfare Programme, and this podcast is being recorded on location in the UK Parliament. I'm here in Portcullis House, one of the many buildings that make up the parliamentary estate here in the UK, and in this episode I'm joined by three guests to discuss defence and foreign policy from the perspective of those who work as researchers for MPs in the House of Commons. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome to the latest podcast in the War Pod series of the Oxford Research Group. I'm pleased to be joined by three parliamentary researchers. Am I allowed to say that? Uh, I'm going to go around and just uh, introduce who is here with us today. So first up in no particular order is Roddy McGlynn. Before joining the SNP Westminster Group, Roddy studied international relations at the University of St Andrews, during which time he spent the summer interning at the UN in Bonn, working on climate security and climate-driven migration. He's also worked with civil society and refugee groups in Berlin and Mexico City. Uh, in Westminster, he works on foreign affairs for the SNP Central Research, covering the Foreign Office, the Department for International Trade, the Department for International Development, and the Ministry of Defence. Quite a few things there. Uh, mm. However, he's not speaking today on behalf of the party or the Westminster Group, but as someone working in Parliament with an interest in foreign affairs. Next is Edward Tebbett. Edward Tebbett is a parliamentary researcher for Crispin Blunt MP. He has a BA in Arabic and Middle East Studies from the University of Exeter and an MSc in Security Studies from University College London. He has worked in Parliament for two years dealing with policy issues and a particular focus on defence and foreign affairs. Similarly, he will not be speaking on behalf of the Conservative Party or as a representative of Crispin Blunt MP, but as someone with an interest in defence and foreign affairs and a background working in Parliament. He is not a member of any political party. And last, but certainly not least, is Sam Goodman. Sam Goodman is a trustee of the British Foreign Policy Group and the author of The Imperial Premiership, The Role of the Modern Prime Minister in Foreign Policy Making, 1964-2015, Manchester University Press, 2015. He recently published a report titled Running Out of Credit, The Decline of the Foreign Office and the Case for Sustained funding, which highlighted the Foreign Office's historic underfunding and cuts to the UK's diplomatic network, so very relevant to today's discussions. He's currently working as a political advisor to Peter Dowd MP, the current Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and has previously worked for a variety of Labour members of Parliament, including Julie Cooper, Sir Mark Hendrick, Michael Duga, am I passing that correctly? Duga, Duga, sorry. (laughs) Not Dougal, McDougal, and the Right Honourable Jack Straw MP. Sam has also spent time working in the US House of Representatives for Congressman Bobby L. Rush, who is a Democrat, I believe, from Illinois' 1st Congressional District. Sam will be speaking in today's podcast in independent capacity, utilising academic expertise and his parliamentary experience of foreign policy. So, I mean, all of you are very experienced uh, and have got uh, a lot um, of sort of background in defence and foreign policy. Interesting, Sam, that you um, work for Peter Dow, who's the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, but have like a, a passion for, for foreign affairs and, and that sort of thing. So interesting how that's, that's worked out. And also I have to say that um, I know that we've had conversations in the past, but I did reference your, your book quite extensively in my uh, master's dissertation. So uh, 
Oh, sorry, a massive, a massive <laughs> fan, a fan here. Um, well, anyway, let's start off. Uh, it's very interesting political times that we uh, are living in at the moment. Uh, we've obviously got the, the B word, uh, but we've also got some interesting leaders as well. Um, I want to start off sort of talking about perhaps your perceptions, your, your views on the, the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn on the one hand, the leadership of, of Boris Johnson, and maybe just to make you feel included, Roddy, uh, to talk about perhaps Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, what, what, what do you think would, would change if um, Jeremy Corbyn became Prime Minister in terms of foreign policy and defence? I, I, I mean, it's very, very sort of hard to say, but, you know, he comes from the Benelite tradition of the left. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, there are some points in history that we can look at. You might be looking at, you know, the Wilson first sort of government, the Attlee government. You probably see a sort of loosening of the relationship with America, maybe more pro-European, perhaps. Uh, obviously, he's very uh, traditionally a non- non-interventionist, mm-hmm. so you'd see a, certainly a line about that. In terms of defence, obviously, the defence policy would naturally be a compromise within the Labour Party. I think uh, he's already said that he's committed to Trident, yeah. he's committed to... Keeping the two percent spending of GDP, so you would see a shift, but I, I do query how much of a shift you'd actually see. Okay. What, what about the the two percent uh, commitment there? Then, because okay, he's going to stick to that funding promise, but do you think, in terms of how that money is spent, that there will be a significant shift? Well, there's been talk of the peace ministry and yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree with that. I could certainly see a shift, particularly more of a focus on personnel. Uh, probably more of a focus, perhaps, away from large sort of defence projects mm-hmm. that in the past have been quite wasteful, I mm-hmm. think. Um, but again, I'm not sure how much of a shift you would actually see overnight. I yeah. don't think it would be as radical as some commentators uh, might expect. Um, but you certainly see, I think, a more sort of anti-interventionist sure. approach. Yeah. Sure. And a sort of, certainly, I, I suppose he has a personal interest in South America, mm-hmm. as many people know. You might see more of a focus there in terms of trade, in terms mm-hmm. of relations. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would certainly be very fascinating to see, I imagine. <laughs> so what about, I mean, Boris Johnson, is he, we talk about Jeremy Corbyn being uh, anti-interventionist, is, is Boris Johnson someone that would be an interventionist? Do we know, is there any sort of signs that he would... Um, I mean, he hasn't really talked much about foreign policy. Well, no. Obviously he was foreign secretary for a while, but... Um, Essentially, British foreign policy at the moment is consumed by yeah. obviously Brexit, so there's very little. You said it, Dyson. It has to be said. It has to be said. Play it first. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my independent assessment is that at heart he is sort of a liberal. Yeah. And that, that what that means in practice, who knows? Foreign policy, by definition, can be so reactive and mm-hmm. that you can set out an agenda, but things happen and things change that yeah, yeah. mean that suddenly you have to completely reassess mm. uh, the whole policy. Um, essentially, status quo would be my assessment. He's There's nothing on the horizon other than, again, what we talk about. We talk about a close relationship with Europe or a close relationship yeah, with yeah. America, but those are part of, sort of, part of wider geopolitical trends that... Mm-hmm. As a democracy and with changing governments, it's so hard to predict where it's going to go and what's going to happen. I mean, I have to say from, from my perspective, the only big thing that came out 
recently has been this idea, and it's not really perhaps as dramatic as people have been saying, but um, this idea that you would take the take DFID and put that back in to the front office, and that's not really that's not necessarily a, a very unpopular view among some commentators. Um, I think there was a recent Henry Jackson Society report that talked about that. I think in your report you discussed like that that in, the impact of removing yeah. DFID from the FCO sort of remit. Um, and that, I suppose that's the only big thing that I've seen. But again, with Boris, he's the kind of person that will... He might have said something in a, a column a couple of years ago that sounded great and witty at the time, but whether that actually will turn into policy is, is another question. I mean, what, what do you think, Ronnie? Um, well, I think we did a sort of deep dive when he first came to power, and we found like an article... One of his uh, journal days where he said that, of course, Iran should have nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. If I was the leader of Iran, then um, it's well within the right. Mm-hmm. It's in the best interest of the security policy and foreign policy. Obviously, now he's prime minister. That just is a momentous sort of sweep that under the carpet yeah. of yeah. Yeah. And so you're totally right. He, he, but I, I, I maybe worry that the, the gap between what he says and what he does. So say you know, he did, said that five years ago, that's fine. No, it's, it's a long time ago. That's shrinking, so now it's like we said that two weeks ago. Like we saw yeah. with the Operation Yellowhammer. That was the old news, right? It came out two weeks ago. Um, I, I worry that he, he, he will say and do different things, and we just, I'm going to go along with it, and that's just how, how Boris works. Interesting, interesting. Well, I don't want to sort of stay on that topic for too long, because <laughs> uh, we've got lots to talk about. But um, I suppose one little question would be, Roddy, again, you. Yeah. To make you feel inclusive, here, but for, 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 yeah. for an independent Scotland, what would what would Nicola Sturgeon mean? Well, I guess just sort of before that, I think it's it's quite interesting. And no one in the party is under any illusions about the place in Westminster and that we shouldn't really be the third party, right? Should be the Lib Dems, but because there is so much popularity in Scotland for um, for the SNP, we've kind of broken that system. Yeah, yeah. And so now you have the uh, SNP as third party with you know foreign affairs spokesperson, mm. different spokesperson. Um, you know, there will never be an SNP foreign minister across the road in the foreign office. There will never be um, <laughs> SNP secretaries of state for all these you know, mm. grand offices there. Um, but instead, we do kind of are acting as, as opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've kind of looked at the foreign policies uh, it, as set out in the manifestos before coming here. Um, the Tory manifesto had 11 pages, the Labour one had seven and the S&P was one and a half. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't, you know, it's yeah, not yeah. a country, yeah. right? No, no. Um, yet. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well done. Um, <laughs> and so therefore, you know, it, how, how or why would you set out, you know, a kind of a foreign policy when yeah. all you're going to do is kind of make enemies, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the FM has kind of weighed in. I think she's actually the only, part that's maybe like absolute fake news, but I think she is the only uh, party leader who completely manages on, her own Twitter. Um, and doesn't have a presser who does it. it does a, it's the first She's going to be a great stateswoman then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she manages her own Twitter. But she does, um, <laughs> like, tweets entirely herself on... Donald Trump does that as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Most of them. <laughs> um, but what I mean to say is that she will comment on kind of global events and she is yeah. broadly um, a very internationalist and, yes. and, and more... Um, well, speaking of defence, um, one thing that's quite interesting about her is that she was a member of the CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, before she joined the SNP. Um, and that's something that is kind of woven through what an independent Scotland's foreign policy would look like. Is, is you know, self-determination is, goes hand in hand with mm-hmm. the sort of anti-nuclear movement. Um, and I think that would be the, the fundamental, one of the fundamental tenets of defence policy. Do you reckon it would be quite similar to sort of long-standing Irish neutrality in 
follow in that sort of model? I would hope so. Um, the, also, the problem is, not the problem, but the reality is that it may, you know, say we win an independent referendum, the reality is it may well not be an SNP government in order yeah. to yeah. be a Conservative yeah. or some kind of coalition. And so it's very difficult to map out a foreign policy because the SNP for, for, is a very, very broad church. Um, but you have people from, like, from kind of the right and the left, as well as they, they try and shut the matter to them in the centre. But um, I, I, there is some sort of suspicion that after... Yeah. after I mean, I, I, I remember when I, uh, I worked here and I, I had a chat with Angus Robertson, I think it must have been after the independence referendum. Yeah. I said, oh, well, you know, surely the SNP, that they're, they're not going to continue, are they? And then, of course, he was laughing because in 2015 they got that, that massive majority. Yeah, but yeah. I, think, I think you're right in terms of, I suppose, what I was thinking is the reality is that, yes, once you fulfil that, that commitment, if you ever do, then does your raising detra suddenly become you know, non-existent? And then you need the party, the ideology perhaps behind the parties to return. I don't know. I mean, I, I think you would see a big splintering. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the sort of anti-nuclear element, which is a huge part of the SNP's base, would probably go to the Greens. Mm-hmm. Um, because they are big in Scotland as well. Um, and they would splinter away. But I think... Well, you would see a shift in, I think, general the political fields in Scotland post-independence because I think that was the whole the, the impetus behind it, right, is to do things differently, yeah. try, not just try to be a smaller country, is to sort of radically reshift uh, political grounds. Mm-hmm. But very interesting. It, a lot of it is very just hypothetical and kind of hearsay. Great. Well, I felt like that was very inclusive. I think we ended up talking more about Scotland than we did yeah. about <laughs> Boris and, and, and Jeremy. Um, <laughs> anyway, one of the big things as well... Uh, when we talk about Jeremy Corbyn and, and the Conservative Party, at least, maybe not just specific, specifically Boris Johnson, but is this idea of a global Britain versus this idea of an ethical foreign policy. Um, first and foremost, what do these terms mean? Uh, what's the traction within Parliament? What are the, what are the sort of opinions of, of these two ideas, these concepts of British foreign policy in, in Parliament? I mean, I mean, you know, to be honest, you know, they're kind of meaningless in many different ways. <laughs> Blunting your question, that, you know, it yeah. really depends what details you add to it. You mm-hmm. know, uh, Margaret Becker, I spoke to her years ago, I think from my book, actually, she made an interesting point where she said that, you know, Robin Cook's ethical foreign policy was only meant to be a sort of one line in a whole speech, and that the press yeah. pulled that out basically, and it was a headline. And she said at the time it sort of completely boxed in the new Labour government, because obviously at that point, all of their critics could go, well, you know, oh, you're still trading, etc. That's yeah, not very yeah, ethical. Yeah. What about that? Is that ethical? Mm-hmm. And it really sort of restricted uh, their sort of options in foreign policy. And obviously, in terms of global Britain, I mean, you know, it's been around now for about three years. Nobody at the Foreign Office knows what it means. I mean, it could mean anything, you know. You could ask 650 MPs yeah. in the Commons and the Commons to 650 yeah. different responses. You can add whatever values you want to, essentially, even to, yeah. depending on what you come from. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive either. You jumble them together and have an yeah. ethical global British foreign <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean yeah, the, yeah. yeah essentially I mean you can anyone can say until someone actually defines them in a I think the big teller has been has been especially in recent weeks is China in that yeah. the UK has basically dithered and have no idea of how to treat China over the past kind of decade like are we best mates and we're going to mm-hmm. trade that stuff and be able to get friends and share values um, or you know, as we're seeing in Hong Kong, like how, how do you, if you go down the path of, of trying to kind of build a close relationship and not really, you know, mm. poking the tiger, what could they say? Um, what happens when things go wrong in Hong yeah, Kong? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, 
It's interesting it, because I feel there's this real tension with, with the UK, given its history. I think in your report you talk about it you know, being the soft superpower of the world. Um, but, you know, we, we comment on when Jeremy Hunt, I know it's probably partly political at the time, but sort of commenting on the, the stuff in, in going on in Hong Kong, and it just seemed a bit sort of lacklustre, you know. The, are the Chinese really going to listen to the UK? I mean, are we, are we kidding ourselves that we still can have that sort of influence and be global Britain, or do we need to become sort of a bit more regionally focused like some other European powers? I mean, I think there, there's things that we can do over Hong Kong. Obviously, mm-hmm. Tom Turgan has been quite vocal about obviously giving citizenship. That's not a new idea. You know, we were talking about this back post Tiananmen Square. Mm. You know, there was a big crisis and fear that there'd be a crackdown in Hong Kong. You know, we have a lot of soft power. We do a lot of work uh, through the British Council, obviously, with our ODA mm-hmm. funds in China. There are a lot of exchanges, obviously. David Cameron made the choice to liberalise visas for Chinese businessmen to come here and buy up huge swathes of property in London. Yeah. You know, you could hit the Chinese if you wanted to where it hurts with their wallet. You know, amend the Magnitsky mm-hmm. Act, for example, and include China on it. But as you say, you have to make a decision. You know, there's a huge amount of foreign direct investment pumping yeah. into this country from China, mm-hmm. uh, and it will continue to do so in the future. Um, you know, if they're going to become the superpower, do we really want to make mm-hmm. an enemy of them? So I guess it really is a question of whether we want to be pragmatic about it or whether we want to be principled about it. And, and I guess that sort of goes maybe to the half global Britain versus ethical foreign yeah. policy, where you know you can have your principles, but you know sometimes it's not pragmatic. Well, I mean that's the difficulty of being sort of super honest with the British public about foreign policy is that yes, we could tell China, no China, stop that. It's very naughty. <laughs> and half people would say, oh, you're being imperialist and telling yeah. them what to do. And half people would say, oh, good, you're standing up. You should do more. Mm. But mm. then that leads into the question of well, what actually should Britain do, and then the moral imperative of should Britain do anything? Does it have a right to do anything? And so it goes down to, I would suggest, basic questions about liberal democracies. And we want every country, because we believe morally that liberal democracy is essentially the best form of government, um, to gradually get that way and give their citizens more freedom and um, a better quality of life, and sort of show China why that's potentially the better way forward. I mean, they've got millions of Uyghur um, people from the Xinjiang region in, essentially, concentration camps or re-education camps, mm-hmm. whatever term's been thrown around um, at the moment, and everyone's focusing on Hong Kong, and obviously that's, in the British public eyes, more yeah. sort of visual because of the history, but there's not just one singular issue about um, China. I mean, it's a country we've got to manage the rise of, and I mean, what about, because China is, I suppose, a unique a unique case because it is such a large power. Mm. Um, but when it comes to a power that's perhaps a little bit, should be at least, in theory, easier to influence like Saudi Arabia, well, what, no. what, why, why I get the sense that we, we haven't, at least in terms of the public evidence for it, or the, the evidence available in the public domain, is that we haven't really been able to influence the Saudis very much, or at least we haven't been willing to influence as much as we perhaps could. Yeah, can I just um, jump to the Saudis in a second? Yes, of course. But, um, <laughs> because I think that, that is a, a, a new conversation that will take us down a, you know, mm, yeah. a new path. But um, I think the, the Commonwealth is, speaking of global Britain, the Commonwealth is, is a vehicle through which that could really be expressed. The UK is currently a Commonwealth chair in office, and doesn't really seem to have done much with it. Mm. And you have things like the one of the big things that we've kind of advocated was 
um, like same-sex marriage or decriminalisation yeah. of homosexuality in the Commonwealth countries. Yeah. yeah. And that seems like quite an easy win. You know, it's broadly accepted in the UK, broadly accepted across the Western world in general. It seems a good thing that countries decriminalise homosexuality. And the UK kind of has the, the, the authority, the historical authority, and also the, the, the office right now, as, as chair in office, to kind of make moves to that. And that would, that would really be global Britain. That would be Britain projecting influence, projecting values, and showing that we are a positive force for good. Um, and so it's the same, it just seems to be a lack of, lack of decision and a lack of, you know, we'll sort of push this down and kick the can down the road, to, to borrow a phrase, kick the can down the road, um, until like in Hong Kong it, it blows up. Um, and it's, it's a lack of thought, and it's a lack of policy, and it's a lack of mm. just kind of interest in what's going on in the borders, I think. Sort of, you know, anyway, back, yeah, back no, to... No, I think, I think that's, that's an interesting <laughs> point about this uh, approach by the UK that, you know, some would argue works in some ways. Um, but sort of the UK or the Brits have always sort of just muddled through and then tried to mm. deal with things. As they I mean, that is kind of foreign policy. <laughs> it is muddling through crisis after crisis as the best mm. you can to try to get a good outcome for everyone. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose you could get into a debate about whether you need a, if you need a grand strategy like well, some countries would have. I, I think and the I, UK doesn't. Have I think it's just having a coherent foreign policy, mm. yeah, actually having a, a singular issue. I mean, you know, you point to Russia, you know what their main foreign policy aim, which is obviously to build a buffer state in Eastern Europe. You know what America wants. You know what the Chinese want. Mm. Even Turkey, I mean, are the ones pushing effectively a pan sort of Arabist foreign policy. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Turkey, Russia, and China all—they're all authoritarian countries. That's correct. They're all—they've okay. got. Well, Turkey. But, but what about France, right? We all know what France's major number one foreign policy aim, which is basically to protect the Francophone and expand it wherever it can. That's why they have 9,000 troops still hanging around in West Africa mm. and why they're pumping so much aid into these countries. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's very regionally focused yeah. and EU-focused. And that's where we get back to Britain. We, Because of our historic links with different countries, it's, it is projecting around the world and it's gradually facing up to reality that that's expensive. Yeah, and that's difficult, and that needs a lot of effort and resources going into. And we've got to bring that back into the twenty first century and go hold on. Whether you argue we've been on a constant decline since the Second World War, gradually trying to maintain our place. Um, but what I was just trying to say with things like Russia and China is that they can have a grand strategy and filter that foreign policy through for decades because. I mean, you've had Putin in government for nearly 20 years. I mean, he's prime minister, president, whatever you want to call it. He's been the leader. There is just a coherent, this is what we're doing, and it's going to take years. I mean, I, mean, I mean, I agree with you, but pivoting back to Saudi Arabia, you can say you know, we've had governments of all political stripes, you know, obviously minus the SNP in power in the last you know, 30 years. And, you know, take Saudi Arabia, for example, our relationship has been the same. The strategy has been the same. You can go to China and we basically say we've had 30 years of saying if we engage economically with China, if we trade with them, they liberalise their country economically or eventually become a democracy. Now, you could question whether that strategy has worked or not. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's a question of whether you're an authoritarian or whether you're a democrat, because ultimately, most of the time, the policies mm -hmm. actually stay the same. I think the coherency is a, is a huge thing as well. So you have, like... The Foreign Office trying to broker, or playing its part in trying to broker a peace deal in Yemen, and then the Department of International Trade is selling the weapons, which then go on. You know, it just and that happens across all of the kind of international offices that you have. Um, again, the, the Department of International Trade seems to be the kind of biggest culprit. Um, the UK export finance, it's at ninety nine point six percent of that is in spending in developing countries is spent on promoting fossil fuels. And what was I, I had it down? It was like four point eight billion is, is spent doing that. 
that's matched almost penny for penny by Diffid spend on countering climate change. And it seems like that kind of cancels each other out. It's, it's, and I wonder maybe, or well, I guess we'll come on to, to rolling Diffid in, but you have kind of these competing departments with competing priorities, and it doesn't seem to be an overarching um, kind of... We are, we are definitely going to get onto that. Well, I think we've, we've sort of covered a lot about global Britain ethical foreign policy in a way. I, I, we, we sort of talked about China more than Saudi Arabia, but that, I mean, that's fine. Um, but did anyone want to talk about the, the Saudi Arabia sort of case study in terms of, even with the global Britain point and the ethical foreign policy point, um, I've, I've listened to Labour MPs in the shadow cabinet, I've listened to Conservative ministers who will say, yes, we want to uphold the rules-based order, which, you know, it's fine, that makes sense. As going back to your point, Ed, in terms of, you know, believing in liberal democracies and, and the liberal order in some form um, go hand in hand. Um, but can we actually do that in practice? And I think going back to your point there, Roddy, in terms of the... the Differences in departments and interests within departments and tribalism there, that we aren't able to actually live up to those aspirations for delivering that. Um, is 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 it is it a right is it the right approach? Should we be more realist when it comes to sort of someone like Saudi Arabia? I mean, our, our, some of the evidence and research that we've done is that actually the money we get back from arms isn't really that significant, but perhaps it's actually more about having that position in that area of the world. Uh, obviously, we've got a naval base in Bahrain now, and um, that clearly is important as well. But you know, can we be stronger? Can we actually live up to the aspirations of? I mean, I mean, the short answer is order? yes, but you have to be willing to pay a price for that, mm-hmm. and that basically means, you know, as you say, that you will probably receive less money from the Saudis. They might not share as much intelligence with us. It might affect you know our naval base in the region, obviously security. Um, but also you need counterbalance. Okay, if you're going to you know, withdraw or downgrade your relationship with Saudi Arabia, you need, you need to upgrade your relationship with somebody else. And you look around the world at the moment, you know, some of the leaders <laughs> are out. Who do you want to have a yeah, more yeah. Deep, deeper and personal relationship with? Because it seems that, you know, bar a handful of countries, you know, most of the world's on fire right now. Politically. But it, do, I mean, it, does, <laughs> does, it does seem extraordinary, though, doesn't it, that, that the Saudi Arabians can murder someone like Khashoggi, mm. Uh, and there has pretty much been silence. Yeah. It's nearly yeah. a year since he, he was murdered. Um, and it, there were quite strong protestations from people like Tom Tugnet at the time saying, well, if it is proven that the Saudis have and that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, did have a hand in it, that we would definitely have to recalibrate our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, but that seems to now have been thrown under the carpet and no one's now talking about Khashoggi, um, and maybe that's down to the fact that Donald Trump has seemed to sort of flip-flop around this issue and that the US aren't willing to alter their relationship and therefore the British way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's completely strengthened MBS, his position within Saudi Arabia. It's actually quite shaky for a period of time, and actually the fact that he's gotten away with this and absolute impunity mm. sort of shows the, sort of the levels that people will go to maintain that relationship. Well, I mean, maybe cynically, I think that it, I would argue it had almost no effect on his long-term strengthening of power in Saudi Arabia. I mean, he spent uh, 2015, when he became Crown Prince, if I'm right, um, gradually bringing all the levers of power into his own circle, and it would take... I mean, he all the people he arrested for corruption and 
or alleged corruption and um, assets seized, there would arguably no effects to his, or visible effects to his power. So, I mean, the simple fact is in a country like Saudi Arabia, unless there is a military coup or some kind of assassination, he's not going anywhere. And that's, I would argue, a factor reality is a question of what happens next. But yeah, I'd certainly agree. Do you think that's a concern, though, for for the British or for the Americans? Perhaps I'm talking more about um, the Foreign Office or the State Department in terms of if we poke this too much, and it could lead to a military coup, what you actually have afterwards is much worse. Because lots of people say that this could be an absolute disaster if it did capitulate, because of it's a very volatile. Why, why, why be, you know, point in case Yemen, basically. Mm. Saudi intervention in Yemen has been an absolute failure, to be honest. Yeah. And now, effectively, it looks like you might have you know, secessionists, people breaking off in the southern state, and the coalition's fallen apart. Qatar, obviously, most notably, obviously, even though the UAE is looking quite shaky. And Saudi Arabia is basically going to be left holding you know, this bowl of crap, basically, and <laughs> desperately trying to keep the state together yeah. and hope that it doesn't fall yeah, apart. I mean, you know, it's their fault for thinking they could bomb yeah, into the yeah, mission without yeah, putting yeah. troops on the ground to right. mop it up. That's nice. And of course the UK has played some role in oh. supporting the Saudis. And again, this is one of the, the 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 challenges here because the UK could potentially well no I'm not gonna say potentially could have done much more to influence how the the Saudis were going about that campaign. This and of course there are challenges in, with complicity and, and allegations of complicity in that is of course a Litigation, which the government would be fearful of, but still, I think it's been very lackluster in terms of addressing that. Well, but that's what the puzzle is: is because they say you know selling arms will create this really close relationship where we can influence them, but no one's seen that. You know, it's you're, you're selling arms, and what are you getting? Okay, obviously you're getting the, the sort of military bases in the region, but with regards to the war in Yemen, which is massively publicly unpopular, what are you? What influence do you have there? You know, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive. You're really, really damaging yourself at home. And, you know, to what end? Is it, are, the, are the rewards worth, worth what you're putting in? Absolutely. Well, let's move on then. We've talked about that for quite a while. Um, this is a very interesting one for you, Sam. It might be interesting for everybody else as well. Uh, but you have written a report about this, so very, very interesting. So we want to talk about um, the budgets for international policy, okay. basically. Okay, yeah. Um, so, first and foremost, your report is about the, the Foreign Office running out of credit and uh, underfunding of the Foreign Office for a very long time. Is the FCO's budget too small? I can anticipate the answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, yeah, it's tiny. It's one of the smallest uh, budgets in government. Uh, and also, a huge amount of it is artificially inflated by, obviously, these cross-departmental uh, stability funds <laughs> that now account for a third of its total budget. But actually, when you strip it away, when you talk about how much we're spending on you know, diplomats abroad and the infrastructure to support them, you know, you're talking less than a billion mm. pounds. It's about you know, roughly 900 million pounds. And then you talk about the cuts to personnel. I mean, the Conservative government cut between 2010 and 2016-17, nearly 1,000 diplomats. Obviously, they're now sort of going on a frantic hiring spree. But you know, when you get rid of these diplomats, you lose the institutional knowledge, you lose the connections with the country, uh, the background. It's really, really hard to replicate. And also, it's just the morale itself. I think you know, the other thing as well, I'm sure everyone else will touch on this, is sort of the decision that Theresa May 
sort of set, say, exclude the Foreign Office from Brexit and basically take the European Department out of the Foreign Office, put it in the Cabinet Office, create DEXU, DIT. It really has kind of emasculated it in many sort of way, you know, very serious way. Mm. And I think it has had a sort of psychological impact on the Foreign Office. What's the point of it? What are they doing, basically? And again, it feeds back to what we were talking about earlier about well, what is global Britain? Mm. Unless there's an overarching strategy and the Foreign Office is leading on it, uh, you know, it feels a bit aimless at the moment. And obviously that isn't helped by you know, historic budget cuts and resource cuts. Any other point? Any comments on that before I ask some questions? No. I mean, we were talking earlier about the coherence of foreign policy as well. Um, we've seen since sort of 2010 when Cameron institutionalised the National Security Council, although it's sort of been an ad hoc group under Gordon Brown, I believe, um, that there was a move towards centralising strategy making at the top of government, sort of cabinet office, PM. That, in a way, could address some of the points that you were talking about, Roddy, in terms of, an in well, in theory, in, 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 the incoherence of foreign policy. If you, if you have uh, the National Security Council at the top setting policy for the rest of government, some form of strategy, some form of coherence, um, but allowing for what you were talking about, Ed, in terms of like, some flexibility when crises arise, is, is that a positive thing? Could you could you increase the budget of the Foreign Office and allow the Foreign Office to have, for example, uh, influence over or a handling on international policy while also keeping the NSC having that sort of strategic level? Yeah, I, I think focus. you could do that. Obviously, in America, they do that. The State Department, obviously, their own Security Council. Mm -hmm. I think you know the NSC really shouldn't be a sort of strategy-setting environment. It really is sort of crisis management and responding to you know, immediate crises. You know, whether that's a military campaign over six months or, you know, a week-long thing, mm. there's a terrorist attack. But, yeah, I think, you know, I'm a big believer, rather than rolling in, you know, differed back into the Foreign Office, that you should just give the Foreign Office sort of strategic control over the direction of international policy. And, effectively, you have a committee mm -hmm. where, you know, the Foreign Office obviously chairs it, but then you have DIT, DFID, uh, and the other international-facing departments. How would that work, then, because... I imagine that the the Treasury would want some sort of influence over what DIT does, um, and then the Foreign Office would also probably want to have some influence over DIT, unless you just put DIT back into the FCO. I'm, How I'm, would that work? Because I suppose that's that's what the NSC does, right? So that that in theory keeps well, allegedly. Yeah, exactly. I use the term theory. That the whole problem in the past has been that there hasn't been this whole of government approach that we've been after aspiring for for, for many decades um, and the NSC was some a way of trying to sort of deliver that and partly through the CSSF which of course has its own problems of course um, but do you think that that could be managed in a way that could still make bolstering the foreign office effective? I mean, I mean it could but again it goes back to the question of transparency mm. you need to be transparent about your strategy otherwise no one's going to understand yeah. what you're doing and I think the problem keep, with keeping it at the National Security Council level yeah. is that nobody has an idea what they're trying to do yeah. they can throw around words uh, like the fusion yeah. doctrine yeah. but I've yet to find anybody who knows what the hell the fusion doctrine is outside of you know sort of white holes yeah, yeah, yeah. and wonks yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know the reality is you need to be able to translate you know your strategy to the public but I mean, there, there, there was a commitment, I think, over a year ago now, when David Livingston was 
the Capital Office to publish the NSC strategies, but they haven't been published yet, so we still don't really know what the strategies look like, which you're absolutely right there, because some of our research has been looking at expanding military contributions across the African continent, and you've got these various disparate groups, you've got the the Whitehall Africa group, then you've got obviously MOD coming up with the strategy for Africa, and then you've got the Foreign Office that's got its own... Africa strategy, which is actually just a list of bullet points, which Bob Seeley pointed out in a recent Foreign Affairs Committee inquiry, um, which is quite entertaining. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't really work because you don't, you don't know whether, okay, the, we know there's an Africa strategy at NSC level, but is, is, the, is the Foreign Office now taking points from the NSC? Is, is MOD taking, and you, you just don't know. So you can't, you can't tell whether it's coherence. They might argue that it's coherent at the NSC, but you can't necessarily check. Uh, to see whether it is coherent. What, what I mean, what, what, what do we, what do we think about this, this um, discussion about moving DFID back into the Foreign Office? I imagine oh, the SNPR. Well, it's it's, a, it's sort of a high level thing of do we decide, and by we I mean the government is international development part of foreign policy? Mm. Is international trade because trade is with other countries therefore it's foreign I mean how many things can you wrap up in yeah. foreign policy but then bringing that back to the realities of politics that's bringing in just in itself three but if you include DexU four different government departments into one making one stronger and less positions for placing either your political sort of friends or enemies in I mean it all comes back to the realities of politics of how it works I, I mean I think in terms of the realities of moving stuff around mm. that happens with a large majority of, of whatever mm. party if that if a Labour government came in with a sort of 150 200 seat majority then yeah they could completely have a massive massive cabinet reshuffle and bring things back in and create a ethical foreign policy mm. because there's so yeah. little threat of there being any kind mm. of backbench rebellion but Essentially, since 2010, there's never been a really strong enough majority. I mean, if you unless you count 2015-17, but mm-hmm. that was consumed by Brexit, um, to actually worry about foreign policy in that sense because it was sort of so focused on domestic policy. And I mean, the, the way I look at things is, once the, once a party or a government shores up its domestic agenda, it can then shift mm-hmm. focusing to policy and that just hasn't been a thing since 2010 in my eyes. I mean, yeah, I also think, to be honest, we haven't had you know a great run of prime ministers who are particularly interested or any good at foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, any enemies around this table, but you know, uh, the reality is Gordon Brown was never particularly interested in foreign policy. He was interested in more development aid side of things. Obviously, finance, financial mm-hmm. crisis, consumed his premiership. David Cameron, I think, you know, had a sort of very marginal interest mm-hmm. in foreign policy, but from a very reactive sense. Theresa May obviously had no foreign policy now. Uh, if she did, she'd still be Prime Minister. Uh, <laughs> as, as, as for Boris, I guess, I guess it's just too early to tell. Mm-hmm. And as you say again, you know, is, is Brexit foreign policy or is it domestic exactly. policy or is it just everything? All-consuming, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the last topic that I uh, put down was sort of looking at how um, Parliament, I suppose, um, can hold the government to account around its foreign policy and its defence policy. Um, one of the 
proposals that's been sort of flying about over the last couple of years, well, for the last couple of decades actually, but has returned more recently, is this idea of having a, a War Powers Law or a War Powers Act, um, which would put on statute this War Powers Convention, which has been the convention since 2003 when Tony Blair invited Parliament and the House of Commons to vote on intervention in Iraq. Um, it's interesting to see how this has developed because in, 2000, in the late 2000s, William Hague, who obviously became Foreign Secretary in 2010, was very supportive of this idea of having a War Powers Law. Uh, and the Conservative Party were very supportive of having a War Powers Law. Um, in 2010, there were concerns that it hadn't, there were no proposals for a War Powers Law, and then they put it as part of the Cabinet Manual that this would be, War Powers Convention would continue, there would be a vote before any military uh, intervention. And then, I think it was last year, William Hague published an article saying, well, the only reason that I supported the War Powers Act was for political purposes, which goes back to your point, Ed, um, about why things happen in foreign policy sometimes. But I just wondered, have you, do you think you've seen a, a change in your time in the role of Parliament? And I know, of course, at the moment we're in a minority government, so Parliament's role becomes very different. But do you think we have seen a long-term shift in the way that MPs are sort of carrying out their role in terms of holding the government to account. Is, is our governments now forced, more often than not, to give more information? Because, I mean, there's so many things that we look at um, I mean, that it's difficult to get information for. But Broadly, I'd say there's a sort of trend from uh, Tony Blair's arguably successful interventions in places like Sierra Leone and Kosovo mm. that then led to Iraq one way or another, and then Afghanistan, well, Afghanistan and Iraq, and how they went down over a longer period of time mm. with the British public, followed by a minority government or coalition government, automatically meant that uh, prime ministers sort of went, well, I can almost fob it off to Parliament and not have to make the executive decisions of mm. that Tony Blair made arguably two good ones and two bad ones, depending on your point of view, or four good ones, whatever. Whichever way you want to look at it, but the point, he made four, several multiple decisions um, that all got taken different ways. Um, I mean, it just comes back to the factual realities of numbers in politics. If your, your domestic support means you can confidently do things or not. Do you agree? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I was, I mean, like Hager, I was somebody who in the beginning was quite in favour of the idea of a War Powers Act. I think actually the Labour Party is still committed to a War Powers Act. Yes, indeed. Um, but I just think my experience of dealing with MPs, they just don't know enough about foreign policy. They're not interested enough about foreign policy to really be able to make these kinds of decisions. And I've sat in meetings uh, where MPs have asked really, really ridiculously stupid questions about really important foreign policy decisions <laughs> hours before example. they're going to vote. <laughs> Give us no an names. example. Come on. No names. Give us an example. I mean, I, I sat in a briefing the last Syria vote we had. Mm. I think this was against ISIL when we were sort of ex yeah. expanding the bombing from Iraq to Syria. And there's a briefing, one Labour MP asked, you know, he just heard that Iran was in Syria. So why is Iran in Syria? What's that all about? Can you tell me? Uh, I looked at my watch, you know, you're, looking, you're, you're voting about four or five hours, yeah. and I'm just, you get a vote, and I don't, but mm. you're going to make mm. a decision about it. I just, yeah, I, I don't have faith in it, unfortunately, and I think that if we're going to take, you know, the role of Parliament seriously, voting for military conflict, you either need to seriously invest in educating MPs about foreign policy, mm. and like have like mandatory briefings where you bring like academics, you know, from both sides, whatever, 
Um, or I would prefer a system where the executive can go and do foreign policy and mm. can have power to do it, but then Parliament holds them accountable for it. And I mean mm. actual accountability. And you know, going back to the example of Blair, I think you know, Iraq has tainted this place and foreign policy mm. house exercise in this place because I think fundamentally after Chilcot he wasn't held accountable. I mean that's just the truth of it. I mean when the Chilcot inquiry came out, you know, they had a debate for a day and a half and it was a bit of a whitewash. Mm. I think if you had the power of censure and you know you knew that if you mess this up, you're gonna be censured by Parliament, mm. which is a big deal, or you're gonna be dragged in front of a committee and you're gonna to have to give testimony for hours and hours and hours, I think you think twice about it. Yeah. Uh, Am I right in thinking that America essentially has a similar thing where if they declare war, quote unquote, that that has to go through Congress. I'm not sure if that's right, but I think they so. They have the, the War Powers Resolution, which I believe, if a president decides to deploy troops, they have 60 days before they go to Congress. And the War Powers Resolution has never been used. Um, but since 2001, because you had the authorization use of military force, AUMF, yeah. it's allowed uh, a president to commit the use of force without going to Congress. And there's been this very, very difficult discussion within Congress about, well, do we change the AUMF or do we keep it? Or Because clearly they've been able to throw ISIS, uh, it was always about Al-Qaeda, but now it's Al-Qaeda affiliates, so that involves everybody else and every other terrorist group. So there is obviously issues with accountability there. Um, well, I think it's a game of chicken as well. I think before uh, the order... I think under Clinton, Somalia, it's very mm. much that you know, the US president can send the troops and Congress can pull them out. But you know, Congress yeah. is going to be very reluctant yeah. to pull out troops once they've been sent. Yeah, and that's the other issue as well, of course. Um, but I, I'm really interested in um, the point you make about whether we need to do more in terms of educating our members of parliament. Because, I mean, to be fair to some of them, they are exceptional. We have a number of MPs mm. who are exceptional members of parliament. Um, you know, for example, Crispin Blunt being one of them, um, who really has a fantastic grasp on, on foreign policy issues. And that, that may be because they've got a background in it or, or not. They, they're just really intelligent people who really understand the issues. Um, and I suppose one of the other things that I, I wanted to ask you all about is I have meetings with MPs sometimes and those that are interested in defence and, and foreign policy issues. And they complain, similarly, about the fact that there, there are insufficient MPs who have an understanding or a background in, 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 in defence. And one of, the, one of the, the indicators is always, oh, well, they don't have military backgrounds. But I sort of think to myself, well, that's not always the best way um, to, to... That doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be a good um, advocate for, for foreign policy issues or defence issues in Parliament. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's less of a discussion about MPs having backgrounds in uh, the Foreign Office or being you know, a former uh, diplomat or whatever. And I, I was reading recently that there was a a candidate now, I think it's in Reading somewhere, a Conservative, who is actually a former diplomat. And I thought, well, I don't know if this has ever happened before. Um, but I wonder whether, talking about the calibre of MPs, one, are there too few people with military backgrounds? Are, can, could we get more people? Is that, would that be a positive thing for um, accountability? I mean, there's there's quite a them? lot of, I mean, depending on how far you go back... Um, mm. Conservative MPs with military backgrounds. Mm. I mean, there's a few. There's around Yeah, that, I mean, there's a few Labour ones. People like Dan Jarvis and mm. um, oh, I can't remember. Clyde Lewis. Yeah, Clyde, yeah, Clyde Lewis. Um, Very interesting thing. Um, there was one who was in the reserves, but nothing um, beyond that. So I mean, I certainly, 
obviously they're where you say oh conservatives and establishment yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's that kind of mm. natural link but sort of obviously spreading spreading them out equally like <laughs> but I mean going into each part of it definitely have an effect and different um, sort of MPs with different military backgrounds at different times obviously have an effect on who they talk to yeah, and yeah. their experiences and whether they actually deployed or whether they mm. just served in the reserves and their experience of the system means obviously they'll be more imbued with a mm -hmm. sense of oh this needs to change or this needs to be really 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 sorted out um, I, this goes sort of part of a wider argument of oh do we want MPs who've all had jobs in different sectors so that they understand different areas mm -hmm. because I mean when you talk about defence it's not just serving in the forces yeah. you've got procurement yeah. uh, you've got logistics you've got any number of um, aspects to do with yeah. defence policy that would be useful to have in Parliament mm -hmm. to actually understand why things go wrong and when they do how, how we can fix them well, I think this whole thing with veterans in Northern Ireland kind of in the streets the, the, the difficulties that can come with having um, like you said for, former servicemen who, who don't and women. and women yeah um, <laughs> Veterans. Um, <laughs> yeah, veterans who have served and they have really specific knowledge of that, but more widely, um, it's about kind of putting the, the pieces together. Mm. Um, and I think Johnny Mercer led the, you know, led the charge against the government for that. Um, and you have kind of, pardon the pun, but MPs going to war with their own governments because they, they are kind of protecting what they know. Mm. Um, and that's the same for every kind of, and that's not just the military, it's I think you. You know, you, you can see it perhaps with people who've worked in financial services, and they do tend to look after what they know. Um, and I, I, like you said, it's it's is this a bit of do you would Parliament be a better place if, if everyone was represented? Um, I think yes. Um, don't think that's a controversial answer. Um, <laughs> but you do see with, with with veterans, it is overwhelmingly officers and kind of um, more senior members. And you know, should we be Urging more kind of privates to, to or not not urging, but, you know, it would be better if we had and, yeah, because yeah. well, like it's, it's overwhelmingly conservative. Mm, um, exactly. And is is that a class thing? Is that something that needs to be looked at? Is that something that affects how we make our foreign policy? If it's people who are, yeah. it's a fair point. Yeah, no, I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I you know, I, I think there's that whole debate really about you know we have one of the most diverse parliaments. Uh, in, in our history, at least physically diverse, but increasingly less diverse because they're coming from a smaller pool of people. Obviously, the rise of the professional politician yeah. Yeah. and actually the number of you know, people who used to serve in the armed forces actually drops uh, significantly. But mm -hmm. I mean, you know, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? You know, do you necessarily yeah. have to serve to have yeah. an interest in defence or foreign policy? I, I, I would sort of countenance that maybe it is a bit of a party point that I do think. I, I guess it depends also on what the constituency is that you represent yeah. as well. Because obviously, oh, if you yeah, come absolutely. from a, if you're representing a deprived constituency where you've got you know, huge amounts of casework, you might not necessarily have you know the time or the effort to look at foreign affairs or defence. Or similarly, uh, you know, if you've got a marginacy, obviously you're going to be spending a lot of your time worrying about that as opposed to having like a thirty thousand majority. Mm -hmm. Which I think Stephen Gettins, our foreign affairs spokesperson, was the second <laughs> narrowest majority in history. It's like two people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, two, two votes. Um, so he is, I don't know how he does it, but spends you know, 
between North East Fife and, and Westminster. Um, I like how you said you said two people then two votes. It's to say like there was one person who voted yeah, twice. No allegations of North East Fife. That's very interesting. I mean, I, I think one of the points that I'm, I'm really interested in what you, you've said is around the information side of things in terms of having access to information, but also the the background of MPs. Because my personal view has always been that yes, of course. Parliament needs to be representative, but actually some of the best MPs are generalists. And why they're good MPs is because they are incredibly analytically minded. Mm. Um, and they're able to take such different uh, issues on and understand them quite comprehensively and represent their constituents and whatever other issues at the same time. So I, sometimes I feel like actually it's better to have, without sort of trying to sound like a civil servant, you know, supporting this idea of having generalists, but I think, you know, having someone like that is often actually quite a positive thing because you don't have those accusations of people being sort of just entrenched in their own issue areas. Um, no, I mean, I, I actually agree. I think it's very important that most generalists anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, essentially, you could argue that MPs, as long as they have the ability to critically think mm. and scrutinise legislation and assess whether someone's telling the truth or what their own personal biases are, yeah. you want them to be generous because otherwise yeah. they will naturally go on. Yeah. I only care about that and someone will say something about a topic that they have no interest in and they'll just take one like one person's anecdotal word for it and that will reinforce mm. that I think that's maybe the problem with foreign policy is that if you're an MP you can kind of drop by without having to think or worry about it um, it's about your, it doesn't really by and large it doesn't really when you vote on the doorstep yeah. mm-hmm. um, people are talking about I was up in Shetland last week and no one mentioned Brexit no one mentioned any sort of these big issues it was transport, social care, yeah. and more funding for hospitals. Um, and so then you, get, you have these generalists, and I, that's, that's great, but then I think you would tend to generalise about domestic policy. And I, I do think you do need somebody who has experience in kind of international affairs, whether that's... I don't necessarily think that diplomats... I, I'm quite keen to keep this line between sort of the civil service and mm-hmm. sort of public or the parliamentary office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it's a great look and a great kind of boards well for our institutions if we have this sort of blurred lines. Um, but they would have been retired. They would have yeah. been retired diplomats. I mean, he's retired diplomats. Yeah, no, no, I also not not like not jetting off to. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I think, I'm the ambassador for France, but I wouldn't as well. I, 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 I do you define by diplomats? You mean literally only people who have been diplomats or ambassadors? You get all sorts of people who've done. Couple of years in the Foreign Office as a mm. junior. Like Dominic Rudd. Yeah, he was a, he was a, he was a lawyer in the Foreign Office, yeah. and there are yeah. lots of people who have had some kind of civil service experiences because they're interested in government and governance, and then move into politics. Or, I mean, it's got there has to be arguably some kind of divide at some point where you've had access to really high level things, and suddenly you're going into politics to. Mm. Well, I think the civil service does have that divide itself. So I think when you're in lower grade, you can take part in political activities, you can attend party conference, you can do whatever. And I think, um, I'm not sure what the grade is, but you get to a certain grade mm. and you can't, okay. you can no longer take part in political activities. Now. Mm. I wonder if we'll be that same. But I do think, obviously, going back to this question about generalists, you know, this sort of relationship between where you have many MPs who are generalists and you have someone who has a big military background or a foreign office background, mm. or whatever, who's a specialist. 
And then you get a sort of deference from some of the generalists because they think, oh, well, you know, this person, you know, 30 years in the army, they must know what they're talking about. Mm. Or, you know, Dominic Greve, QC, you know, yeah, yeah. former attorney general, he must know what he's talking about when it comes to the law. And I, I think, you know, there's an interesting sort of mix about, you know, what's the right balance between generalists and specialists? Because if you have too many mm. generalists and, like, one specialist, you might end up in a situation where everyone's just going to go and follow mm-hmm. what the specialist person is saying with the loudest voice because, you know, they must be right. I think the deference is interesting. I was listening to a, a podcast about the Lords and how that can be interesting because you have so many different specialists there. But maybe the, the point was one of, the, one of the Lords made was that often their knowledge is maybe outdated. Um, <laughs> the knowledge might not be super right, um, but they're sort of deferred to it. You know, that you can evolve knowledge. In this I mean, I, you're absolutely right there, and I think you you often go to events where there are maybe an elder veteran who served you know, maybe in Saudi Arabia in 1970, and he sort of said, oh, well, I think this, I think that, and you think... But, I mean, yeah, I respect you for, for your service, and obviously that knowledge was, was valid probably back then, but thing, things have changed, so you do have to be careful about that, yeah. don't you? I mean, the other thing as well that we haven't touched upon that I would, I would argue about when debating foreign policy is obviously the general level of access to intelligence. Because obviously mm. opposition parties can only really work on the intelligence they get, and a lot of the time with these you know, keys... Yeah. Tight votes in Syria and Libya, the government has been quite reluctant to share intelligence mm-hmm. with MPs. Um, you know, how can you make decisions when the prime minister is saying, you know, I have all the right answers, yeah, yeah, I yeah, have yeah, the intelligence, yeah. and you yeah. don't? You yeah. just got to trust me. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose Iraq meant that MPs don't necessarily trust the prime minister anymore. And perhaps prior to that, MPs at least have recovered from Suez. Um, but now they've had Iraq to contend with. Um, but, you know, on the whole, probably would have trust, trusted the Prime Minister when it's a national security interest issue to have been telling the truth. Um, and I think, yeah, now that we know that that's not necessarily the case, um, perhaps there does need to be a, a shift, some reform in terms of how yeah, MPs yeah. have access to that sort of information. Yeah, it's I, so I, important. I think there, there was a committee report out recently by, I think it was the Defence Select Committee or the Public Accounts Committee that suggested that yes. well, they said that you know, yeah. there should be a committee of MPs yeah. that can look yeah. at this intelligence. I mean, a bit of our research was, was published in that report about yeah. the fact that special forces have no form of accountability whatsoever um, and it makes no sense that you can uh, have a vote, for example, with regards to countering Daesh in Iraq and Syria uh, where there are no boots on the ground but then you can deploy it in lieu of conventional forces, special forces, to effectively do a very similar job to what mm-hmm. ground forces may be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not necessarily doing the, the, the sharply in, sharply out, as Crispin Blunt once described it. Um, they're, they're very much acting as ground troops, and that's mm-hmm. an area that we uh, have, have been researching quite extensively. Anyway, look, we've been talking for quite a while now. Uh, I think we might have gone over the time that I had set originally, <laughs> but we've had a very interesting discussion. Thank you very much for taking part. If there's no more final quibbles or queries, we'll leave it there. Well, thanks to Sam, Ed and Roddy for taking part in that fascinating discussion. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. For those who want to read in more depth about the topics we covered, we put links to any research or publications that we have mentioned in the episode notes. And if you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Programme and the Oxford Research Group's work, please do subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo and at remote underscore warfare. You can listen to all the previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to you joining us soon. Goodbye. <laughs>